from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this pre-Independence Day weekend. We have the perfect setting for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. These farm fields are just outside of Kansas City. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The big acreage debate gets answers as USDA releases the planted acreage report. The biggest story, I think, was the decline in soybean acres, uh, a drop of 2.6 million acres. Plus, did the latest look at grain stocks reveal answers to why cash grain bids have been so strong? The reality of where crops planted across the Midwest actually go. So a small fraction goes to actual food products such as cornflakes or sweeteners or such, so it's, it's less than 10%. Over 40% of the corn grown here in Nebraska is utilized through livestock. We're following feed and debunking a few myths about beef. Some of the biggest misconceptions of those finished on corn or grain-based diets are uh, those environmental impacts that they could have. And in John's world? John Hart, farmer and patriot. Now for the news, did farmers actually plant more soybeans than corn? Will USDA providing answers to the big acreage debate with a couple major reports on Thursday? Starting with acreage, USDA shows corn and soybean both under 90 million acres in the U.S. U.S. corn planted acres came in at 89.9 million, up slightly from the March survey. Soybean acres fell to 88.3 million. That is down from the 90.9 million in March. Now all wheat acres dropped to 47.09 million in this latest report. That's from the 47.3 in March. Cotton acres did come in higher than what farmers intended to plant in March, now at 12.47 million acres. USDA did note in the report that it will collect updated acreage information from the states that saw delays due to the wet spring. That includes North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. And USDA's June grain stocks report typically takes a backseat to acreage released on the same day. But some analysts were watching this year to see if tight corn stocks are leading to the strong cash grain bids in places. Instead, it appears farmers are just holding on to old crop with corn stocks up 6% from last year overall and the amount being stored on farm 22% higher than a year ago. Soybean stocks nationwide, those are up 26% and the amount of soybeans stored on farm is up 51% from June of last year. Wheat is what's seen tighter supplies across the U.S. with all wheat stocks down 22% from June 2021. And money is going out to farmers impacted from wildfires, droughts, hurricanes, derechos, winter storms, and more. USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack announcing that so far, producers have already received more than $4 billion in payments through the emergency relief program. That accounts for about 67% of the more than $6 billion set aside for phase one of the program. Phase two will be aimed at filling gaps and providing help to producers who didn't receive the payments through existing programs. The money comes from taxpayers thanks to a bill President Biden signed into law last year. The Supreme Court this week ruled to deny RCAF's request to have their lawsuit against the National Beef Checkoff considered by the court. This effectively puts an end to this case, which has been ongoing for nearly six years. The premise of the case was that USDA does not have enough oversight on the National Beef Checkoff, but the high court ruled there was not enough evidence to prove that claim and that the agency is using the checkoff the way it was intended in the National Act and order. This ruling was not a surprise because we knew there were the whole whole lawsuit process has been nothing but a politically motivated 
uh, effort by our calf to once again just try to disparage the checkoff and disparage NCBA. So we've always known that the oversight has been uh, in place. We know that the oversight is robust. We know that these dollars are being used the way they were intended to be used. Woodall added that RCAF aligned itself with an animal activist group Public Justice to gain support for their legal battle, which is tied in with groups like PETA. This is not the end of the story, though, as RCAF has another lawsuit against the beef checkoff that is working its way through the courts. This one claims USDA has violated the Administrative Procedures Act. Well, the sale of more than 2,000 acres of prime North Dakota farmland to a group tied to Bill Gates has stirred emotions. The Gates-linked Red River Trust purchased the farmland from the owners of Campbell Farms, which is located in Pembina County. That's about 50 miles from the Canadian border. Now, North Dakota's state attorney general has asked the trust to explain how it will satisfy the state's anti-corporate farming law. The state's agriculture commissioner saying public reaction to the purchase has been largely negative. Gates has amassed nearly 270,000 acres of farmland across the country. The Microsoft co-founder is considered the largest private owner of farmland in the country with acres across the U.S. Well, the cattle market is continuing to tighten up. That's showing up in new cattle on feed numbers from USDA. It reports 11.8 million head as of June 1st. That's 1% above last year, and it's the highest June 1st inventory since 1996. But feedlot placements at 1.87 million head is actually 2% below last year. And among those placements, more lightweight cattle than normal. Well, in Ukraine, farmers are being forced to do something many farmers here in the U.S. would deem unthinkable, destroy their own equipment. They're doing it to prevent the Russian army from confiscating the wheat currently ripening in the fields. In recent days, the Russian army has bombed refineries, seaports, and many other parts of the country's infrastructure. And estimates point to at least three, maybe four of the seven major export terminals in Ukraine have sustained major damage. The destruction means even if farmers have kept their equipment intact, many are unable to access much needed diesel to fuel the harvest. Well, on this holiday weekend, if you're hosting a 4th of July cookout, prepare to pay more. An American Farm Bureau Federation market basket survey says you'll pay just under $70 total for your favorite foods for 10 people. That includes cheeseburgers, pork chops, chicken breasts, homemade potato salads, strawberries, and even ice cream. It breaks down to less than $7 per person, but it's up a total of 17% or about $10 from last year. The increases blamed on supply chain disruptions, inflation, as well as the war in Ukraine. All right, that's it for the news. Well, we need to take a quick break. And then with changing of forecast, it seems like that is definitely on the minds of the markets. We'll have a check of your forecast next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Enzone from Farm Shop MFG, which allows you to rehydrate your soybeans from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's an extra semi-load added to your bottom line. Order your Enzone fan by July 31st and get $200 off. Meteorologist Matt Urasavik joins us now. Matt, we're watching the heat as we get into July, but also keeping an eye on that tropical storm that's approaching the U.S. Yeah, Ty, and that's right. We are going to actually see some of that moisture make it into the southern part of the United States, which could give us a little bit of help on uh, especially the root zone, very dry in parts of Texas, along the Gulf Coast and into the southeast. They're going to be uh, liking some of those pop-up showers and storms as we head through the next week. But also, we're going to be watching some more rain moving through the Corn Belt and back into the northern plains there where soil very, very dry. 
and then those drought conditions slowly starting to go away in portions of New Mexico and Arizona where we've seen a lot of that monsoon rain and that's going to continue to be the case. But if we look at the drought monitor here compared to that root zone, a little bit of help still coming for parts of New Mexico back to the west though, Nevada, Utah, Arizona and towards California staying very, very dry. So are parts of Texas and then east of there that drought is expanding into parts of the southeast and even up into uh, parts of the Corn Belt and the Great Lakes. Something we'll continue to keep an eye on. Now this warmth is not going anywhere. You'll actually be able to see this ridge build as we head into this coming week. It's not going anywhere, but as the ridge starts to slide back to the west, that allows more chances for rain across the Corn Belt and into the east as we head through the second part of the week. It'll still be warm and humid, but there will be more chances for rain because of this very big ridge building back in the west. So here's a look at Monday. You can kind of see where that ridge is back to the west. Here's that chance for showers and a couple of storms there through the east, upper Midwest and northern plains. Still some showers back in the Four Corners region. That remains the case on Wednesday as well, staying hot and mostly dry back in the west, but more chances of rain uh, along and east of the Mississippi where all those drought conditions are expanding. And then on Friday, much of the same as that ridge continues to amplify in the west, more chances for rain in the upper Midwest, parts of the Corn Belt and heading into the uh, south and east as well, even up the uh, east coast with some rain into New England. Here's a look at July temperatures as a whole. We take the whole month much above average, especially back where that ridge is already building back into the Four Corners region, right along the Gulf Coast, uh, much above normal temperatures, but we're keeping that into the Ohio Valley and even the Northeast. And if we look at this with regards to precipitation for the month of July, right along the East Coast, we're looking at above normal precipitation right through the middle of the country where that drought continues to expand. It looks like below normal is going to be expected and we could see that monsoon season last a little bit longer there back in parts of the southwest with more rain likely for parts of New Mexico, Arizona and especially parts of California as well. Here's a look at the summer temperature forecast. This does include September staying above normal for most of the lower 48 and then taking a look at that precipitation below normal right through a couple parts of the country, which uh, those growing regions really going to need the rain as we head towards those fall months and towards harvest time back to you. Thanks, Matt. Well, from hot and dry to more mild with moisture forecasts are fueling volatility, but do USDA's latest reports change the big picture for prices? Dan Bossie and Arlen Suderman join me from the studios next. Well, we're back in the studio this weekend with a little AC to break down these big reports from USDA that came out on Thursday. You have grain stocks, you have acreage. Arlen, a lot of numbers that came at the markets all on Thursday. But what was the biggest story for you? Uh, the biggest story, I think, was the decline in soybean acres, uh, a drop of 2.6 million acres. And basically, I think this kind of confirms what the industry was thinking, that anytime you do a survey, you're going to have a margin for error. If you look at a political poll, it'll say candidate A has 46% support uh, with a plus or minus 3.5%. Well, with the USDA surveying 60,000 farmers, it's not that wide of a range. Uh, but the industry was kind of assuming that USDA was on the bottom end of the survey air range on corn and on the upper end on soybeans and they confirmed that but soybeans came down even more than expected that takes off about 150 million bushels worth of production potential going forward and uh, so therefore it really tightens up the new crop balance sheet a lot more
Yeah, Dan, any indication of where those acres went? I mean, we did see, uh, you know, a few more wheat acres. We saw a, an uptick in cotton acres. But when prevent plant and some of that conversation, when will we know if that's possibly where we lost those acres? Well, we don't get prevent plant data until we get into the August timeframe. So it'll update as we go forward, but we can assume they came from North Dakota. If we look at the changes of where acreage really occurred, big drops in North Dakota across the board. So we assume because of late planting dates, a lot of those acres came from that state. And of course, soybeans being the biggest component of it. So to Arlen's point, I agree. That was the big surprise today. And I think it now sets up the stage for some fireworks should we have any summer weather problems. Yeah, really, the market focused on weather. But before we get to that, we also had grain stocks. A lot of question on why we're seeing such strong cash grain bids across the country, Arlen. Did the grain stocks report give any answers to that? That was probably the most neutral grain stocks report I've seen in four decades. Um, really, uh, less than 5 million bushels off from trade expectations across the board. No real surprises there. And uh, really kind of surprising that uh, we could see any type of stocks report come so close to what the trade is expecting. Really keeps the focus on the acreage and the weather, as Dan indicated. Yeah, Dan, when you look at on-farm storage, that's up quite a bit for corn, up quite a bit for, for soybeans. Is there any story there that we need to be watching? Well, I think farmers uh, indicated that they wanted to hold on supply until they knew more about their new crop, uh, trying to maximize the markets, if you will. But as you look around, I mean, because of the logistical snarls, because of the margins that are still there for ethanol and for crush, soybean crush, it leaves me with the idea that the cash markets will stay relatively well supported. And so I think when you look at a July D's corn spread over $1.20, it leaves you scratching your head a little bit. But I think at the end of the day, what the market's suggesting is that as you look at the amount of minimum supply that needs to be in the pipeline, that has now increased and will continue to increase as new soy crush uh, comes online in the year ahead. Okay, so Arlen, now that we have these, these acreage numbers, we have grain stocks. Does it change the story any as we head into July when typically can be a big weather market mover? The weather is the story. And we kind of sold off today because of weakness in the broader markets, end of the month, end of the quarter, and a lot of other factors there at play. Uh, but as we get past the three-day holiday weekend, I think it's very normal for these markets to really set the tone on what the weather models say coming out of the 4th of July holiday weekend. And if they're hot and dry, fireworks as dan said and if they're mild and wet then we probably are going to have trouble sustaining any type of rally all right we need to take a break and then we'll have much more about the markets coming up later on u.s farm report registration is open for the 2022 pro farmer crop tour join our team as we gain insight on the 2022 growing season in person or online visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you well, and an important point in history to remember this Independence Day. John Phipps has a bit of a history lesson as we celebrate the land of the free and the home of the brave. Of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, historians list as many as nine as farmers. The National Archives, however, lists only one with that occupation, and that's John Morton of Pennsylvania. There were several plantation owners and landowners, but only Morton fit their definition of a farmer. Other biographers include Abraham Clark, 
and John Hart, both from New Jersey, as fitting this definition. Hart, of whom I will speak today, could also be categorized as one of the founding fathers who gave virtually all for the cause of independence. For example, two of his sons were captured by the British Navy, beaten, tortured, and starved in a futile attempt to force Hart to recant his signing of the Declaration. When Washington retreated across New Jersey in December of 1776, the British and Hessians ravaged Hart's farm and forced him to flee from his wife's deathbed. He spent months hiding in the woods and caves of the Sourwood Mountains with his two youngest children. The American victories at Trenton and Princeton and the ensuing withdrawal of British forces allowed him to return to his farm and, be re and began rebuilding it and his life. He remained active in New Jersey politics. In 1778, he invited the American army to camp at his farm, from which they went on to win the Battle of Monmouth. By this time, in his 60s, his hardships, coupled with the effort to rebuild, had taken a toll on his health. He died soon after from kidney stones after painful months of illness. Hart was aware from the beginning of the price his signature could require, and nonetheless voted for independence with unusual zeal, to use his own words. Patriotism was more than a political buzzword for him, and as the document he gave so much for stated, he freely pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. Then he backed up those promises as few others have done. That he was a farmer brings honor and significance to our profession on this special holiday. Thanks, John. Up next, an American-made Moline Tractor Tales is next. It's time to sign up for the 2022 United Pork Americas Conference in Orlando, Florida. Register today at unitedporkamericas.com and join us September 7th through the 9th. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This episode, special for our Minneapolis Moline fans, is we're headed to Missouri to check out a G900. It's unusual because they didn't make very many. Uh, I think 25 is uh, total. The number on this one puts it in the middle of the 25. Moline probably was one of the first that actually put front wheel assist on tractors. It's got some bark to it, you know, and yeah, yeah, it, uh, it's a pleasure to drive, yes. Oh yeah, they make a little more noise and you know, it's just like a race car. You hear a race car going down around the track and if they make a little more noise, it, gra it grabs your attention. I just think that the, it's a really a good good tractor, or good engines, and uh, they, uh, if you took care of them, they lasted really good. Well, story is that uh, we were coming towards Kansas City from St. Louis, and my wife was wanting to stop at an antique shop. And I wasn't too interested. I was more interested in getting home. Well, we did go to the antique shop. She did not buy a thing at the antique store. 
but I ended up buying the 900. So, you know, it, it uh, turned out to be a really a pleasant situation for me anyway. And uh, she'd been wanting me to get into a hobby for quite some time. So I have to give her credit for getting me started into this crazy world of tractor collecting. Thank you, Greg. Well, still to come, these lush cornfields are a good sign, especially in a year where every bushel matters. We're following feed from the field to the livestock farms next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, fields of crops paint the country every year at this time of year, but once harvested, where does the grain eventually go? We are following the bushels from the field all the way to livestock farms this weekend in our Farm Journal report. Three years ago, an aerial view of Carroll County, Missouri looked like this. We had six, seven foot of water where we're standing uh, right now. As the Kastners aren't finished fixing the damage left behind, they've come a long way in the three years since. We've got very good looking prospective crop here. Um, we had really good stands, um, emergence was good, um, and you know, we had some timely rains early. So for now, lush fields look promising, even if these fields are also ones that can be tangled in misconceptions. So a small fraction goes to actual food products such as cornflakes or sweeteners or such. So it's, it's less than 10% that goes towards those products. Instead, the majority of the corn isn't processed directly into food. So when you drive down the highway and see the field corn out here, 90% of that goes to the ethanol exports and livestock. On Kastner's farm, all of this corn goes to two local ethanol plants. One of those plants is less than 20 miles away, right here in Malta Bend. By design, our facility has about 10 days of ethanol storage, 10 days of DDGS storage behind us here. Chris Wilson is the general manager of Mid-Missouri Energy, a farmer-owned ethanol plant that took root 17 years ago. One of the nice things about our facility is we can speed up up to maybe 60,000 bushels a day, but on average, we're going to process around 55,000 bushels of corn each day, which is going to produce around 160 to 165,000 gallons of fuel ethanol. In addition to that ethanol, the plant also produces a steady stream of DDGs. In addition, that would be about 425, 450 tons of distiller's grains. All of which are stored here. So each pile is going to be maybe 500 tons, 700 tons. That's before it's shipped out to end users across the U.S. Most of our products are going to ship to the south, so uh, southern Missouri, northern Arkansas, Oklahoma, southeastern Kansas. Some of that corn stays local. We use DDGs, uh, a lot of it in, in our uh, 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 gestation rations and some, a little bit in our lactation. A little uh, late nursery use quite a bit and then all the way through finishing all the way to the last few diets. Sandage of Hanhill Farms is 16.8 miles from Mid-Missouri Energy, a family farm that's been in business for more than a century. My dad built this feed mill in uh, 1962, the original mill was behind us and was to feed out 2,600 head and now it's feeding out over 60,000 and sometimes over 70,000 hogs a year. But when Mid-Missouri Energy opened in the mid-2000s, Sandage started to incorporate the DDGs into his feed mix. It reduces our cost on our diet some. You get fiber there's, and there's, there's nutritional benefits, you know, energy, a little bit of protein and so it, it just fits into the diet really, really well. 
The fiber and protein is attractive, but Sandage says it's also the convenience. We can run up there and, and pick up a load and, and have it here, you know, in, in an hour you could be up there and back. As this pork producer says, the past year has been riddled with challenges. We've had purrs has been a huge problem for us for a number of years. We get healthy and then we, we have a break again. And uh, we're, we're dealing with the 1441C variant right now. And for him, it's taken nearly a year to recover. We had a couple months there. We didn't wean very many pegs. And, and so in our sales were basically nothing. As Sandage rebuilds, he's also battling inflation. It's everything we touch. Every time we turn around, you know, somebody's raising their, their price. This Missouri pork producer admits those challenges mean he may only break even this year. But he hopes the strong start in the fields surrounding his farms means that corn and soybean farmers across the state will produce a big crop. There's so few of us actually involved in production agriculture. If we don't stick together, you know, we're not going to have we're going to make much of a uh, uh, we're not going to have much of a voice. Now, a recent NPR story said food prices are skyrocketing for a lot of reasons, but two crops, corn and soybeans, play an outsized role as those commodities touch most of the food Americans eat. But as you just heard, that's not necessarily the case. And later on the show, Michelle Rook heads to the fields of Nebraska to dig into those details a little more. But first up, we need to head back to the studio to discuss the grain markets this week as well as livestock. Dan Bossi and Arlen Suderman join us next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association. Beef, poultry, pork, and dairy producers combine to be corn growers' number one customer. Both industries need each other to be successful. Together, they are one team. Learn more at ncga.com. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Back in the studio to talk markets uh, with Dan and Arlen. Dan, you know, in the last roundtable, Arlen was saying weather is the story right now. When you see where prices are, you see how tight some of the situation is because of, of the loss of, of acres and some of those crops. What's your advice for farmers right now as we enter July? Well, I think as we watch the weather markets very carefully, it's key. But I would also offer that if you look at new crop balance sheets, whether they're soybeans, wheat or even new crop corn, they continue to tighten. So I don't see an end to the multi-year bull market that we've been in. That being said, I think harvest lows will be far above where this year where they were last year, maybe 580 to $6 in corn, maybe 1350 or $14 in, in November beans. The wheat market looks like it's already in the process of starting to form some seasonal lows based on what the world wheat market is doing. So as I stand back from it, I think weather is very important. A bushel of yield means a lot to Chicago markets every day. We're going to see a lot of volatility. Farmers probably need to be a little patient here, but I do think we will see higher prices longer term. And it's hard to create a st strategy from a feed user's standpoint to Arlen. But now that we have the latest look at hogs and pigs, now that we have the latest look on cattle on feed, is there anything that's changed with these livestock numbers that could support some of these livestock prices in the months ahead? Well, I think the biggest problem for the livestock sector right now is what's happening in the economy and uh, the fears because consumer sentiment, consumer confidence, both of those surveys have seen that consumer confidence just really plummet of late. We've got to get that picked up. Um, we've seen some amazing pickup in cow slaughter or cattle slaughter here in recent weeks. 
Um, it's been very impressive how all of a sudden we're getting past the Packer capacity issues. And, and on the hog side, we're starting to see some declining numbers that are helping support things. Um, but cattle, we've got a few more months to go. We've got uh, record fawn feed numbers, and then we start to decline numbers. But our biggest threat ahead of us is what's in the economy and the fact that the consumer may, according to M2 money supply and currency and circulation, the money is still, the stimulus is still in the system, but the consumer doesn't want to spend it. In fact, we saw that in the data that came out the, earlier this mor on Thursday morning, uh, where inflation is kind of flattening out, but still at high levels, but consumers are pulling back on spending, only increasing consumer uh, consumption spending a couple of tenths of a percent month on month. Yeah, Dan, so do you agree that is the one factor that's changed because inflation, it's been a story now for a year. It's not like this is catching the markets off guard, but we have seen some pressure in some of these major uh, commodities because of this talk about recession. So what has changed that also has changed the mood of the markets? Well, that blood tool called the Federal Reserve in terms of what they're doing with interest rates. And again, we can't bring more supply to the market, but what we can do is try to hammer on demand. And that's that blunt uh, instrument that the Fed is doing in terms of raising rates and taking inflation expectations lower. Uh, I would agree with Arlen. I think that's right. And I think you do have to see the economy, but we're not in a recession today. So it's hard for me to cut demand until I really start to see recession, but the markets are anticipatory. So they are worried about the future and they need to see demand if, if stay the same or increase if indeed there's peak confidence coming forward. Dan, what is the, the factor? What is the sign that we'll know that we are in a recession? Well, I mean, by definition, it's two quarters of negative GDP will tell us that. But again, when I look back in recessionary views from the agricultural sector, grain demand or meat demand tails off a little bit, but not very much. And so I go back to the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, world wheat corn demand was basically flat. That means we're not increasing, but we didn't go down. So Again, food is a little bit insulatory in terms of what it means in recession. But again, when we've got fund managers that are excessively long in a lot of markets, they sell out things in the fear of the future. And that fear is now what's dictating price here today. Arlen, Dan, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We need to take a quick break and then we're off to the fields of Nebraska next. Cornbelt states like Iowa and Nebraska lead the nation in corn, ethanol, and cattle production. And as Michelle Rook found, each part of that business model benefits from the other, even during these inflationary times. In the heart of cattle country, producers are well aware of the synergism between cattle and corn production, and that includes Nebraska's Mark Jagels. Nebraska sits in the golden triangle with livestock, corn, and ethanol, and I think that is so true of what we can produce and how we produce it so cost-efficiently and effectively. Over 75% of the state's corn is irrigated, and that consistent crop is the reason so many feedlots have set up shop in Nebraska. But Jagels says that corn also goes beyond the state's borders. Over 40% of the corn grown here in Nebraska is utilized through livestock across the United States. So livestock is a very, very vital part of the corn industry. The corn and distillers grain fed to cattle in Nebraska also differentiate the finished meat product. Cattle producers say the role corn and DDGs play in the ration has helped differentiate their product in the marketplace. 
Steve Wellman, director of the Department of Agriculture, says that product is demanded by consumers at home and abroad. Nebraska beef is sold around the world. Last year in 2021, we hit a record level of value of $1.81 billion of Nebraska beef sold internationally. The corn-fed beef program is part of the Nebraska Straight from the Good Life marketing campaign and core to their long export relationship in Southeast Asia. Japan had been our leading customer for export markets, but South Korea has really grown recently. And actually, South Korea is now the leading uh, destination for beef from Nebraska. And USMEF figures indicate U.S. red meat exports utilize 537 million bushels of corn and 3.4 million tons of DDGs annually. In the big scheme of things, I mean, for a corn producer, I mean, that's adding almost $3.5 billion worth of income to a corn producer by the corn that is utilized in the livestock along with the distillers. Cattlemen in the nation's top corn and ethanol producing state of Iowa also rely on the corn, but also the distiller's grain that the industry provides. In fact, David Trowbridge says it's been a game changer in cattle rations. And they're extremely important to us as far as feeding cattle, uh, both in a price-wise, uh, uh, energy-wise. Their inclusion rates run from 25 to 45 percent, depending on the price, but DDGs have cut their feed costs. At times, it's, it's been significant, probably 15 percent. He says distiller's grain also improves the palatability of the ration and improves consumption. It's made us all better bunk managers. However, even with historically high-priced corn, he says they're able to make it work on their balance sheet. We're just dealing with a lot more revenue uh, expenses going into the cattle, but more, ca more money coming out of the cattle also. So our net returns, our margins, uh, really haven't changed a whole lot due to the high price of corn. And he says the whole reason they have the cattle industry in Iowa is because of the ability to feed local grain. So it's a close link that they value. With U.S. Farm Report, I'm Michelle Rook. Thanks, Michelle. Well, freezer meat, is that a growing trend that's here to stay for the long haul in a major way? Customer support is next. Is there a future in small meat plants? This year, the White House announced $1 billion would go toward expanding meat processing across the country. Will these changes have an impact on where and how shoppers buy meat for the long haul? Here's John Phipps. Triggered by the pandemic, small meat processing is getting more attention. Perhaps the unexpected benefit for local ranchers and farmers is a rise in local marketing and new, smaller processing plants being built around the country. To wit, the U.S. Meat and Produce Facebook page created by a Wyoming ranch woman. They offer a map where producers can pin their location. It has exploded in numbers. And that's from Dory Steckley in Petoskey, Michigan. Between COVID and supply chain disruption, the idea of local meat processing has enjoyed more public interest than I can remember. In 2018, there were about 4,000 small and very small meat processors in the United States. Small means under 500 employees, which seems pretty big, and very small under 10. I could not find any hard numbers either way or change in those numbers, but locally, our locker plant has wait times of several months, according to one of the few cattle producers near me. Our locker plant had been operating on the edge for decades 
until deer hunting became a big thing around here, but that's seasonal. I am not optimistic about significant expansion of this segment, though, however, even though I don't disagree with consumers who claim better taste and more choice of how the meat is cut. The first reason is just the withering competition. There's simply no way very small plants can process meat as efficiently as the four giant companies who control 85% of meat packing. The consumer also has been become accustomed to rows of identical products at the same place they buy other food. And don't forget, Tyne just talked about our new largest ever meat plant proposed for South Dakota. Another limiting factor is rural labor. It is finally soaking in that there is no pool of unemployed labor to be tapped in small towns especially. Moreover, labor competition has driven pay much higher everywhere. Local manufacturers around here are bussing labor in from over 100 miles away just to keep running. Even if you could find people to work in local meat plants, there would be considerable training time and cost. Finally, skyrocketing meat prices have made even half carcasses major investments, not a grocery item. While local prices have lagged, large retailers, both small beef producers and plants, have raised prices to match. In short, deconcentration of any industry is extremely difficult. In meat processing, it is highly unlikely to happen. Small meat packers will remain a boutique industry near larger population centers or online, I think. Thanks, John. Up next, we head to a small meat processor in Oklahoma to uncover the science behind the beef. Well, whether you prefer grilling pork, beef, or chicken this Independence Day weekend, protein continues to be in high demand, even with the higher retail prices at the store. But there are some major misconceptions on some of those labels on how animals were raised. And some of those labels don't make the meat nutritionally or environmentally superior at the store. A bustling business since 1959. And in its prime processed quite a few animals uh, on a weekly basis. Ralph's Packing Company is a staple in Perkins, Oklahoma, a family owned business for four generations. Ground meat is a long standing staple. Like many other small meat processors, Jake Nielsen says Ralph's Packing Company is seeing a shift to more direct marketing of meat. Those individuals that own livestock, raise livestock, have shifted the way they market those animals away from what we classically call the sale barn into more um, direct to the consumer marketing. Accelerated by the pandemic, the internet and social media have opened the door for more direct sales. But it's those same avenues that can also be a source of misinformation about meat. Some of the biggest misconceptions of those finished on corn or grain-based diets are uh, those environmental impacts that they could have. Gretchen Mayfee is a meat scientist at Oklahoma State University. She says grass-finished and grain-finished beef have many similarities. They've all grazed uh, throughout the vast majority of their life, and they're only finished on corn for a short time, and nutritionally, uh, very minimal differences. Mayfee says grass-finished beef is a niche market, only accounting for about 5%. And here at Ross Packing Company, you'll find only corn finished, but that's mainly due to customer demand. Tremendous difference in carcass characteristics, uh, product attributes, um, aroma, palatability. It's a radical difference between the two, and there's not one better than the other. 
And the taste is due to this, the marbling of the meat. That fat, that marbling uh, contributes to flavor. Uh, it contributes to juiciness and then somewhat to tenderness. With no real nutritional difference, this meat scientist says the science also proves that grass finished isn't more environmentally friendly. Sometimes even the grass finished because it takes longer to reach that market weight or to provide the same amount pounds of beef, uh, it can have a higher impact environmentally than those finished in a feed yard. Some of the misconceptions stem from places like this. Butcher Box, which is a subscription meat service offering only grass-finished meat. Butcher Box claims that grass-fed beef has arisen as a healthier, leaner, and more humane alternative to the standard beef that you can find at the grocery store. But experts say that's simply not true, and even the term grass-fed can be misleading. That is probably better described as grass-fed and finished, because we finish these animals to an end point their, their purpose in life is to, to be a food source for us, and so we need to be careful in the terminology we use so that we don't confuse consumers. Whether you opt for meat that's finished on grass or finished on corn, these meat experts are serving up the facts so beef is what's for dinner for years to come. Debunking some of those meat myths. Well, I'm Tyne Morgan. For all of us at U.S. Farm Report, thank you so much for watching. Be safe this weekend as you head into Independence Day, and we hope to see you here next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.